Today's sermon text is Ecclesiastes 1.12 through 2.26, and it can be found in the Bible in front of you on page 553. This is the word of the Lord. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. Behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guided me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, 
seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. For I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after win. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and you have breathed it out, and it is spiritually discerned. So uh, we pray now that you would attend my words and my mind and in everyone else's ears and heart and help us uh, to receive whatever it is you have for us today through your word. And so we pray that we would be able to comprehend and then in turn apply. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Start with a uh, question today. If you've not already found Ecclesiastes, please go ahead and track that down. Again, turn to the middle of your Bibles, probably end up in Psalms, then go Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And again, there's Bibles underneath the chair in front of you if you need one. But I'm going to start with a question. I want to know what it is at this moment, uh, whatever stage of life you find yourself in, what is it that you think you're missing? Uh, There's probably something in every one of our lives, no matter where we're at. Um, What is it that if you had it, uh, then you think you'd be truly happy or fulfilled. Uh, what is it that you think is, is holding you back from contentment and peace and satisfaction? What is it that, that's not there that if it was there, then you would be fulfilled? What would you put in that slot? Um, you can maybe frame it as the, the if only game uh, that sometimes we play with ourselves. If only I had this, then I would be happy. If only I had that house, that car, that vacation home, that spouse, those kids or not those kids or not that spouse or that promotion or that job or that income or those friends or whatever you can put in that blank. If I only had fill in the blank, then my life would be satisfying. What would you put there? How many of us think often or with at least some level of frequency that the reason that we're not happy or the reason we're not satisfied is because something is missing or there's something that we have that we just don't have enough of or there's some level that we haven't yet achieved in life. There's a a goal that we're aiming at and that goal is meant to provide satisfaction. So until we get there, then there is no satisfaction. So we, we are either in the place where we're expending a certain amount of energy to get to that place or we've simply resided that we'll never get there or we've gotten there uh, 
And we found it lacking and now we're depressed about the fact that we got there and it was lacking. I would assume if we're honest, we're, we're all somewhere on a spectrum when it comes to this, that we're either working toward a goal that we believe will bring us satisfaction. I would kind of put myself there. We're working toward a goal that will bring satisfaction or we've given up that that is even attainable. So there's no use in trying or we've gotten there and we found it wanting. So we likely would all fall in one of those categories. No matter where you find yourselves, uh, Ecclesiastes has something for you, something I believe is equal parts sobering, equal parts clarifying, and equal parts uh, hopeful. So it's sobering, clarifying, and hopeful. Uh, if you were here last week, then you know this is week two in what is planned as a 12-week journey through one of the more puzzling books of the Bible. Uh, I'm not sure who all missed or hasn't heard the sermon from last week, but I think you need to hear that. Uh, not because I think it was great, but because I think it would be really helpful uh, to have some of that because we covered a prologue and a prologue tends to set up the rest of the book. So I think it would be helpful. And you can determine whether you disagree with how I'm approaching Ecclesiastes, which might be good for you uh, to do. So uh, Ecclesiastes, in the words of one author, is one of God's gifts for us to know how to live in the real world. Um, in certain ways, this book has a simple point to quote another author life, uh, another author life is complex and messy, sometimes brutally so, but there is a way to live in it. Okay? Simple point. Life is complex and messy, sometimes brutally so, but there is a way to live in it. Ecclesiastes is the book that says, let's face this head on. This is a book that says there's actually joy to be found in the mess. There's joy in the mess. And it's not a joy that ignores pain or ignores the frustration or ignores all the problems, but it's joy nonetheless. Um, It's a joy that doesn't come through ignoring or fleeing the mess, but finding the joy in in the midst of it. As uh, another author I quoted last week says, this great Hebrew philosopher calls us to joy, but to a joy that thinks, a joy that does not shrink back. So that's the journey we're on. Uh, we all know uh, if you've lived any time, the world is messy and complex. But how do we live in it? How do we live in it? That's what we may not quite understand and may not ever fully understand. And then how do we actually find joy in it? Is there actual joy in the messy and complex world? And if so, how does that happen? How do we sort of tap into that? Those are all great questions and I think all addressed by Ecclesiastes. All right. So with that said, let's dive back in. You heard the text read a minute ago, attempting to cover verse 12 of chapter one all the way to uh, the end of chapter two. So that's a chunk. In reality, if you're going to do a book like this in 12 weeks, you've got to cover some chunks at some point. Uh, but this is a purposeful chunk. It's sort of cohesive. It all ties uh, together. So last week I mentioned prologue of the book, verses one through eleven. Uh, set up the aim of the book in its entirety. And in this prologue, I pulled out what I labeled as the author's thesis, okay, which is found in verse 2. And it's repeated almost verbatim at the end of the book. So look back at that, chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanity. So here's, here's the thesis. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. That's what he calls himself. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the rest of the book just unpacks that. Okay, we will see vanity repeated. You heard it 
as Linda was reading, just vanity over and over. It's repeated and it's explained and it's illustrated over and over and over throughout this book. Now, as I said last week, this is a word, this word vanity. It's both misunderstood and complex. It's misunderstood because it's complex. Some have wrongly and too simply tried to interpret as being meaningless. It just means meaningless. It's just all meaningless. So you could just plug that word in there. Again, I think the NIV says that. If that were the case, then the book is meaningless and we are wasting our time and we shouldn't be going through this. But I tried to make the case that there is a more nuanced and correct interpretation of what is a complex word. And I'll just echo some words that I quoted last week. The teacher The preacher is not affirming the meaninglessness of life. Instead, he is affirming that life lived under God's providential rule in a fallen and sin-cursed world is rarely understandable to us and hence incredibly elusive and often mysterious. All of that last part would be vanity. So it's, it's pretty nuanced there. In short, life doesn't add up sometimes. And we don't have all the tools that we need to truly comprehend it. So the thesis of the book is that all is vanity. Which the author follows with a question that's also instructive for understanding the book. Verse 3 of chapter 1. What does man gain by all the toil, which is vanity, which he toils at under the sun? What does man gain? The implied answer to that question? Nothing. Which is what verses 4 through 11 provide an illustration of. And then he just continues to reinforce this and unpack this as the book unfolds. That word gain there. You're going to see that over and over. The same word might not be translated as gain, but it's a, it's a word from the business world. means profit. Really, it's talking about what's left over at the end. And he's saying nothing. At the end of it all, nothing is left over. To sum up what he says up to verse 11, he's basically saying nothing we do changes the fact that we labor and we toil and we die. And the earth and everyone goes on, everyone left on the earth just goes on without us after we labor and we toil and we die. So we have the thesis and then we have the question and it's implied answer. And then we got an illustration to prove the point last week. This week, we get an experiment. So last week, verses 4 through 11, illustration of the thesis and the question. Okay, this week, we have an experiment, an experiment. If you were going to prove the point that everything is vanity and that in the end, there's no profit, no gain, nothing's left over, then how would you go about doing that? How would you carry that out? What resources would you need to carry that experiment out? Okay, if you put it in a lab, what are you going to need to say, okay, I walked through this and here's what I did and here's how I came out the other end and proved my thesis that I developed in the beginning. Well, what we end up getting is someone who is considered to be one of the wisest, smartest, richest, most powerful people to ever walk the earth. Someone who seemingly had unlimited intellect, access and resources, and I'm not talking about Jesus, And we believe this individual to be the author of the book, and that's King Solomon, the son of King David. 1 Kings 10, so you can go back and read about Solomon. We're not going to dip back into that, but 1 Kings 10 says that Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. He was renowned for his wisdom. Okay, He exercised it. He demonstrated his wisdom. He wrote the book of 
Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom. He wrote this. This is a wisdom book. This man is Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Albert Einstein, Warren Buffett, all wrapped into one package. He's probably athletic and good looking, too. So if you're going to run an experiment to figure out if it's all vain, this is the guy you want. The smartest guy, the richest guy, the best looking guy, the most athletic guy. Let's go figure it out. Let's run the test. This is your man. We get to live through him and we get to work through him to figure out, is there ultimate satisfaction to be found in life? And if so, where's it at? How do you get there? We get to live vicariously through him to do things and to experience things that we might never get to experience or we could never test. Okay, if it's truly fulfilling or if it's lacking how should we view it? We, we, we get to find out through the life of Solomon. Okay, If you were here last week or if you read the book, you know the results of, the experience, of this experiment or if you were just listening to the text. But let's walk through it and see how it comes out. Two sections today. They'll be on the screens as we go. Two sections, three points under the first one, two points under the second one. All right. First section, we see a thoroughly empty experiment. A thoroughly empty experiment. Verse 12, in chapter 1, we get the credentials of who's writing this, who's doing the experiment, so that hopefully we know it carries a little weight, but we just talked about Solomon and all that he brings with him. We see that he was king over Jerusalem, according to verse 12. You go to verse 12 of chapter 2, and he asks a question. For what can the man do who comes after the king? What can the man do who comes after me? To which he says, only that which has already been done. Which seems to be an answer to any critic who would think that Solomon's not going far enough in the experiment here. Basically, Solomon said, I'm the king. I had it all. I tried it all. Who, who's going to come after me and do this test better than, than I'm doing it? Okay. Who's going to be more thorough than me? You can trust the results that I'm about to give you. Okay. Who can do anything above what I just did? Okay. Verse 13 of chapter 1, he lays out the parameters for the experiment here. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Translation, I wisely sought out and tried everything. And what did I find? I found my thesis to be true. Verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under heaven and behold... All is vanity and striving after the wind. So he just quickly just says, I've done it all and I did it wisely and it's vanity. So there you go. But he doesn't just leave us there. He's like, I'm going to give you a little bit more detail. Doesn't just make broad conclusions or broad statements and then conclusions. He unpacks all the categories of his uh, experiment here. Broadly speaking, I tried it all, found it to be vanity. But if you want to know more detail... Here you go. And then we get three test cases from Solomon. In the process of this experiment, he lays out three things to test. And we're going to take them one at a time. You could probably break this into more categories, but everything he mentions would certainly fall in these three categories. So we're just going to focus on these. First, we get the test of wisdom. The test of wisdom. So he said, verse 13, he sought out by wisdom all that is done. Okay, so he used wisdom in his seeking out, so he wisely sought out all things. But we also see here in chapter 2 that he tested wisdom itself. 
So he didn't just use wisdom to test other things. He said, I'm going to test wisdom. You might say he tested education. He tested intellectual ability. To use more common terms for us. He says in verse 16 that he acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were before me. Verse 17, I applied my heart to know wisdom. And as if that's not good enough, he said, I'm going to I'm going to apply my heart to know the opposite of wisdom, which is folly and madness, he says, just so that I can see both sides of the coin. Like, if you want to know what this is, sometimes you got to look at the other side and to truly understand it. So he looks at madness and folly. If you've read anything about the life of Solomon, the, the wisdom thing is what sticks out as most memorable. Okay, He's just given incredible wisdom and in some of the things that he does and the way he exercises it. So his credentials to be able to test wisdom are well documented. So that being the case, what results did he find? What did he find when he tested wisdom? Verse 17, this also is but a striving after the wind, which kind of self-explanatory striving after the wind is sort of a futile, vain effort. Try catching the wind, try bottling up the wind. You're just not going to get there. You get to verse 17 of chapter two and he's brought up wisdom again and he concludes for all his vanity. And a striving after wind. So he says it twice. Well, I don't think the conclusion is that shocking, right? He's not going to just contradict his thesis right out of the gate. I don't think we should assume that. But it does beg the question, what did he find so futile about wisdom? Okay, don't just tell us that, hey, I went out and got all wisdom and found it to be futile. And I checked it against madness and folly and, you know, kind of compared the sides and it's all futile. But why? Like, what did you find about wisdom that was so futile? And he doesn't leave us guessing. He gives two reasons for concluding that wisdom is futile or vain. And this is not in your notes, so this is extra, no charge. So you can just write these down. I didn't have to spend the energy to put them on paper. But first, wisdom is insufficient. Wisdom is insufficient. He says in verse 15 that what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. So when we think of something being crooked, particularly people, we think of wicked, right? Corrupt. Somebody is crooked. But here the word should be understood as inscrutable, meaning there will always be aspects of life that remain a mystery. I don't care how wise you are. No matter what amount of wisdom you gain, you will not be able to solve every problem that exists on earth. And then he goes on. He says what's lacking cannot be counted. Basically, things are not always going to add up. There will be things that you cannot explain and you cannot understand. I don't care how wise you are and things just won't add up sometimes. Education, particularly the higher you get, will try to tell you there's an answer or an equation for everything. But unfortunately, that's simply not true. So first, wisdom is futile because it's insufficient. Second, wisdom is futile because it leads to frustration. Verse 18, you... He kind of drops these little proverbs. So verse 15 and verse 18 are like proverbs in the middle of the book. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So he's painting a picture of of irritation or frustration that comes from gaining more knowledge, gaining more wisdom. Kind of a simple fact. Learning doesn't make you happy. 
understanding life doesn't always make you happier. Sometimes just the opposite happens. There, there's actually a grain of truth in the, the saying that ignorance is bliss. Or as someone else said, the main emotion of the adult American who has all the advantages of wealth and of education and of culture is disappointment. Sometimes the more you know about life, the more you get frustrated by life or the more you get depressed in life. There is, to my knowledge, no correlation between education and happiness. I heard a pastor say, information of the mind will not lead to satisfaction of the heart. Information of the mind will not lead to satisfaction of the heart. It's often the most educated that are the most depressed. You can just do a simple thought of experiment about thinking about children or you as a child growing up and then you as an adult. Now, certainly... There were, historically speaking, simpler times for kids where all the problems of the world weren't so accessible to them as they are accessible to us. But generally speaking, as you move from childhood to adulthood, I like to say life gets heavier. It gets weightier. The more you know about life, the more you learn about life, the more you're exposed to life, the heavier it seems to get. Now, to be clear, neither the preacher here nor myself Neither of us are saying that wisdom and education are bad and therefore should not be pursued. Even though he says it's futile, he does. He says it's better than the alternative. Okay, And we also have to keep in mind where he's going to land at the end here. So, But before we get to the end, he he says that wisdom is better than foolishness. Verse 13 of chapter 2. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So wisdom may have may come with a, you know, it's a mixed blessing and it has distressing limitations, but it is superior in life to foolishness. Okay, one is like walking in the light. The other is like walking in darkness. One is like walking with your eyes open. The other is like walking with your eyes closed. You can see that one is better than the other. So the takeaway is. Not here that we should abandon the pursuit of education and wisdom. The exhortation is that you cannot find happiness in a bookstore, in a classroom, or listening to some of the latest gurus. Again, knowledge of the mind does not equal satisfaction of the heart. So the first test is wisdom itself. And the conclusion? Futility. Why? Because it's insufficient and it's frustrating. It's better than the alternative, but still insufficient and still frustrating. And I'll just pause quickly and say this to the youth in the room. Okay, you know who you are. If you're a youth, if you're a non-youth, you can listen to this as well. But I want to say it to the youth because your parents will get mad at me if I don't. Or they may think, well, you just told them they don't need to learn anything. Education is a gift from God. We're going to see that, at least generally speaking. Having a desire to learn and to grow in knowledge is a good thing, is a God-given thing, something to be pursued. But let me burst a bubble for you, puncture a misconception, hopefully for your good. If you decide to go to college, if that's the path that that you're able to take, if you're able to get multiple advanced degrees, okay, understand this. Happiness does not exist on the other side of those degrees. Don't put too much stock 
in advanced education. They hold out no more promise of happiness than a GED does. Okay. I did not tell your kids not to go to college. Kids, I did not tell you not to go to college. Don't leverage me in that conversation. I'm simply telling you, based on this word, don't put too much hope in it. There's that goal, okay? If I just get to here, 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 then happiness, satisfaction resides on the other side. You're going to get on the other side and go, okay, where do I go next? Because I didn't find it there, okay? Next test. Next, we have the test of pleasure. So, kind of get over into chapter 2, and you have the... Second category of testing here, and he's a little more detailed, a little more thorough in this area. Verse 2, I said in my heart, verse 2 of chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And then he goes on a list of variety of things. And I want to point out what he includes, but I think a qualification is needed here before we dive into this list. It's important to know that this passage is reporting, not supporting, okay? It's reporting, not endorsing everything that's spelled out here. Some of what Solomon does in this testing is obviously immoral and sinful, which can be attested to by going and reading about his life and how things turned out. We see the devastating effects of some of his sin on his life and on the people that he is leading and the people that come after him. In general, I would say this, this passage in particular is not concerned about whether or not these pleasures are immoral or not. Some are, some are not. This passage is concerned with futility. That's the aim here. I don't want us to conclude at the end of this sermon, if we just rightly pursue these things, then that makes them okay. Because that would depend on how you define rightly, or better said, how the Bible would define rightly pursuing some of these things. So the point here is futility, not necessarily right and wrong or immoral moral. Remember, this book literally sits almost in the middle of the whole book. And the whole book has a lot to say about some of these things that Solomon does. So, And this Bible does not contradict itself. Okay, So don't get to the end and say, well, if I just pursue these things rightly, that means they're okay. Some of them are not okay in the way they he pursued them. Okay. So depending on how you break down what he gives us here, you can come up with more or less sources of pleasure that are tested. I'm just going to say 10 is sufficient. 10 categories under this are sufficient. And I mean, you don't have to mark these down. They're clearly in the text. I just kind of want to rattle them off. Look at the credentials of the test. Like, did he test everything out? First, you see humor. Verse two, which he describes as laughter. Can you laugh your way to satisfaction? It's been pointed out that that. So many comedians are some of the most depressed people in the world. So laughter is not going to get you there. Laughter is a good thing, though. Next, you see alcohol. Okay, people have been trying to use that one since it came into existence. Now, I want to I want to take I do want to point this out that he says his heart was still guiding him with wisdom there in the middle of verse three. So he still had his discernment in the middle of testing wine to see if it would satisfy. So I don't think the picture here is drunken debauchery. Which kind of makes the argument stronger. So he, this means that even a measured and right use of alcohol, even, even using it that way, it comes up short. Certainly use it the other way, it comes up short. Next you see architecture or development. Verses four and six, really, you start to put them together and there's several of these things in verses four and six. It's like Solomon is trying to recreate Eden. He's trying to recreate the garden. 
The first part of it is he just says great works like houses, like pools and parks. And then next you see nature. Again, that's part of verses four through six. He plants vineyards, gardens, parks would also fit in that. Just like Eden is trying to be recreated, he's trying to fashion this perfectly satisfying environment. So you see architecture, you see nature, you see possessions next. He had slaves. And then it just says generally he had great possessions according to verse 7. He gathered silver and gold and treasure according to verse 8. You also see food. So this comment about herds and flocks, that would be a part of his possessions. But that also be food. You can you go back and read about Solomon's life like food was a big deal. He didn't hold anything back when it came to food. Next, you see music. Or you might say the arts. I got singers, both men and women. He didn't, ha- he, didn't, he didn't need Apple Music or Spotify. He just had the artist come to his house. He wanted some Taylor Swift or some Kanye or, I don't know, Garth Brooks. I don't know what everybody's taste is in here. Like, they just came running to his house. Sing. Okay? Now, sing some more. Next, you see... Physical intimacy to keep it PG. He had many concubines. You know what that means. You can add status to the list. Verse 9, he became great and surpassed all. There was He sought pleasure through status. And then you have work, toil. He talks about work and toil. It's going to be unpacked more later in the text. Verse 11 references all the work that he had done in seeking pleasure. Any of you... I don't even know. Is that 10? Any of you more OCD in the house know if that was 10? We'll just say it's 10. If it's not 10, I'm sorry. Just find another one. Uh, it doesn't really matter. I'm just trying to give you some categories there. The point is that he didn't leave any stone unturned in pursuing pleasure. He says in verse 10 that he kept his heart from no pleasure. And he even found enjoyment in it. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. So he went after it. He found pleasure in it. And he did it wisely, but what was his conclusion? Verse 11, I considered it all, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. In the end, it didn't ultimately satisfy, and there's nothing left over. It's been said that pleasure provides both satisfaction and distraction. The problem is the satisfaction doesn't last. It's fleeting and the returns are diminishing. Satisfaction has a lot to do with novelty. Okay, You keep having to find new things to, to increase the satisfaction because the old things aren't working. And I think I mentioned it last week. Nothing is more subject to the law of diminishing returns than novelty. Because you just can never get enough and it's increasing and it can never be new enough and great enough and big enough. And then distraction only works for a time. Okay, Pleasure can certainly distract from reality, but reality doesn't evaporate while you're distracted. It's waiting for you on the other side of the pleasure. It's just pulling you away from it. It's changing your your mind's eye. You're looking over here. Okay, It's a sleight of hand. The reality still sits there. Here's how David Gibson sums it up. I mentioned him last week. This is the stuff of secret dreams, fame and fortune. The sky's the limit and he seems to have reached it. Yet when he gets there, stands back, surveys the empire 
It's all quite pointless. He has actually gained nothing. Thus says the man who owned everything. He discovered that although we pursue happiness in every corner of our lives, in the same corners lurk the darkness of diminishing returns. In the end, achievements and pleasures do not last. Everything is passing. Happiness is a vanishing vapor. All our bubbles eventually burst. There are uh, almost endless celebrity quotes that we could insert right here. The one that always sticks in my mind because I'm a football fan, I just remember Tom Brady. I don't remember what Super Bowl he had won at this point, but he's doing a 60 Minutes interview. And he's kind of reached a pinnacle of fame and just fortune and like he's got it all. And he, he he's being interviewed on 60 Minutes and he says something. He says, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is this is this is it. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life, me. I think, God, it's, there's got to be more. I mean, this this isn't it. This can't be all it's cracked up. To be, this can't be it. And you really couldn't get more than what he got at that point when he said that. But he said, this can't be it. Wisdom failed the test, and now pleasure fails as well. But there's one more. And I think the Brady quote applies to this as well. Next, we get the test of success. The test of success. Verse 18 of chapter 2. So I hated, I had, I had disdain for, for all my toil which I toil under the sun. You ask Solomon, why? Why, why? why all the disdain for all your work and achievement, Solomon? He would say, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or will he be a fool? Someone else will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. And he just reiterates that in verse 21. Sometimes you have to take all your success and all your achievement And just leave it to someone who didn't earn it. And you don't know what they're going to do with it. Don't you feel the only the the one uh, consistent job that I could think of that this applies to is the president of the United States. You get four to eight years. You have I mean, you really can't go above that in life achievement. Right. Just take out of your mind. Recent presidents. Just the, the office of president. Okay. You really can't go above that in life achievement. You worked so hard to get there and you made these changes. You thought these are these are world altering changes. And four years later, somebody comes in and they just completely change everything you did. And they just ball it up, throw it out. Preacher here surveys work and success, work and achievement. And in the end, he finds no ultimate return. And and it, it gets worse. It's work or achievement or success comes with its own punishment. It's not that you can just work and it'll be vain and there's nothing left over because somebody else gets it and you're gone and they misuse it and they didn't even work for it. There's punishment in it. Look at verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Basically, what do you get for all the work on top of the fact that it might end up in an idiot's hands? Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Basically, hard work is hard and successful success is difficult. And then I love or really more hate the second half of verse 23. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Work and success deprives you of sleep. Anyone attest to that reality in their working life? 
It's been widely concluded that workism, which is a, a newer term, makes is making, has made Americans miserable. Because it's something that has promised transcendence and even community, as some authors say, but delivers on neither. Workism has made success a treadmill instead of an end zone. Like you're just running, but you're not getting anywhere. And you don't even realize you're on a treadmill. You think you're on the road. And you think you're going to get somewhere, but you realize, nope, just treadmill. Just It just keeps going round and round. The reward for success in our day likely means what? More time at the office, more stress, more sleepless nights. Congratulations. Success and achievement are funny things. Just when you think they'd leave you feeling satisfied, they actually present you with a haunting question. You get there and you go, what do I do now? Or what's next? You thought it was the end of a journey and you realize it's just the beginning of what could be a more difficult journey. I heard one pastor say somewhat depressingly, I don't know if I fully agree, but it just stick, it stuck out. In the U.S., we work more hours each year than any nation on earth. Anybody know if that's actually true? Not putting that out there as fact. Yet, due to the curse of the fall, we end up hating our jobs, never getting our work done, and simply longing for the myth of retirement, at which point we have to search for something to do. It was the second part that I thought was interesting, somewhat depressing. And it does. It sounds depressing. It sa- all this sounds anti-work, but the Bible is not anti-work. We've discussed this before. Work created by God, pre-fall institution. Okay, they worked, they tended the garden before the fall. So a good institution that was frustrated by the fall. Okay, the ground was easy to work before they ate the fruit. Now it's hard to work because they ate the fruit. So the point of all of this is not to abandon work and the pursuit of success. The point here is that it's futile. In a sense, like the other areas, work makes a lousy God And will not ultimately satisfy. Just as in wisdom and pleasure, we can't squeeze something out of work that it doesn't contain. You cannot squeeze ultimate satisfaction, meaning, purpose, all of that out of work. It it doesn't exist in it. Doesn't contain the ability to provide lasting significance. You may achieve a lot, but in the words of Solomon... Some idiot may ruin it after you're gone. You can test wisdom. You can test pleasure. You can test success. You'll find the same thing at the end of the line. Fleeting effects with no ultimate gain. That's Solomon's thoroughly empty experiment. At the end of each test run, he concludes, it's all vanity. It's all vanity. just says it over and over. Amen. Close the book, right? Everybody's happy. No. Doesn't leave us there. It would be depressing if he did leave us there. So follow this thoroughly. Following this thoroughly empty experiment, we get a surprisingly hopeful conclusion. A surprisingly hopeful conclusion. Now, we hit on this last week, but it's made really explicit in this text. And I'm calling it surprisingly hopeful for a reason. Okay? It's both surprising and it's hopeful. It's certainly hopeful, but it may be more surprising than anything. The surprising part is how the preacher reaches his conclusion or why he reaches his conclusion. It seems to be the preacher is given clarity regarding one of it, which helps him to see the rewards that exist in life. He's given clarity on one event 
that helps them to see the rewards that exist in life. So follow his journey, his logic here. First, in the preacher's conclusion, we see the clarity of death. The clarity of death or the clarity death brings. I said this last week, the preacher does not allow us to avoid death. If you don't like thinking, talking, hearing about death, Ecclesiastes is not your book. A lot about it in here. You get to verse 16 of chapter 2. And he's recounted his pursuit of wisdom, all his pursuit of pleasure and, and, and part of his pursuit of success. And here's, here's what he comes to. Verse 16 of chapter 2. For, the, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. Gibson, again, puts it so well throughout his lifelong experiment in ultimate meaning. The teacher has not been living like a fool yet. Now he realized that even living wisely in this way will not stop him from being placed in a box in the ground, just like the village idiot. Gibson goes on to say, and here's the point I'm trying to make here. It is the reality of death that alters the preacher's perspective on all of his achievements in life. So the human problem is that death comes to all. We're all going to one day die. Okay, we can either embrace it or we can ignore it. There's a lot of ways to ignore it. So we can either embrace it or ignore it. As one somewhat humorous pastor said, the wise man, no less than the fool, will at some point quietly assume room temperature. It's all coming. It's coming for us all. Now. This, like everything else we covered, is not meant to provide despair. It's meant to provide clarity, as it did for the preacher. It's in here because it's clarifying. So the language of the text, you just read the text and you feel like the preacher's just throwing his hands up and saying, who cares? Like, it all, it doesn't matter. I don't know why we're even trying. But facing the reality of death actually leads him in the opposite direction. It leads him... To see that all these things that exist under the sun, wisdom, pleasure, success, they have limitations, but they are not all bad. They just need to be seen and used and pursued for what they actually are. Which is what we see in how he concludes this section, which leads to our last point. The clarity of death leads him to see next the reward of grace. The reward of grace. One writer said, Our problem is that we often spend so much time trying to figure out life through wisdom, straightening out life through work, and avoiding life through folly, that we die before actually getting around to enjoying life through grace. Verse 24 says, There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, Apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Okay, it's interesting here. In in the original language, that word better, okay, there's nothing better. It doesn't exist in the original language. It's there because any other time that phrase, that, that phrasing is used in the original language, better is there. So the translators just assume it was it was omitted, so it should be there. However, the text makes more sense without it. It reads like... There's nothing inherent in man that would allow him to be able to eat and drink and and find enjoyment. Basically, nothing in and of us on our own that allows us to do this, to be able to do this, be able to enjoy things that that's a gift of God. 
Apart from him, there's no true enjoyment in what these things are and what these gifts have to offer. Apart from him, we'll continually try to squeeze something out of these gifts that doesn't exist. We'll try to get more out of them than they have to offer. We don't have it inherently in us to enjoy these things the way God designed them to be enjoyed. It's only grace that allows us to enjoy them as gifts from God and not as God's themselves. It's only grace that allows us to enjoy them as gifts from God and not as God's themselves. Not as a means of ultimate satisfaction, but as pointers to greater satisfaction. One pastor very simply said, Solomon's point is that there is nothing in the world that will ultimately satisfy. That being the case, how do we live in the world that God has given us? We find enjoyment in what God has given us only for what it is. We don't expect too much out of it. When you combine verses 24 to 26, you see that God not only gives graciously of these gifts, He gives the ability to enjoy them. So He gives gifts in life and the ability to enjoy those gifts. I quoted this last week. He gives the gift of being able to actually enjoy this great big marching band of futility. We see a similar truth in the New Testament. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, Paul says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, there's a hundred qualifications there, so. But Gibson says that some people take this section to mean that we are to eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's kind of carpe diem. Eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is. The preacher is telling us eat, drink, and be merry because that's what there is. He gave it to you to enjoy. It's not all there is. It's just what there is. God has given us good things in this world, and they are their own reward. He goes on to say, when we accept, Gibson goes on to say, when we accept in a deep way that we're going to die, that reality can stop us expecting too much from all the good things we pursue. We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what they need to be to make us happy. And the way God gives us enjoyment in his gifts is by giving us perspective on ourselves. When we know that the gift is not meant to be a stepping stone to greater things, when we realize that we're not meant to rule the world or master our destiny or achieve ultimate gain through our careers, then we discover that enjoyment or joy is itself the reward that we may expect from life and all of our effort expended in living it. It's noteworthy here what the preacher discovers at the end. He discovers that joy does not come through striving. So joy doesn't come through his striving. Joy comes through God's giving. He was striving and trying to squeeze joy out of these things instead of stepping back and letting God give him joy in these things. Which begs the question, how does that happen? Okay, like, how does this come about? How do we get on the receiving end of that? Well, There's a lot to be said in the remainder of the book about that, but there is a fundamental key in the text. Verse 26 says that, For to the one who pleases him, him being God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Now, there's a hint there 
of ultimate justice, of end times judgment, of how everything's going to go to the righteous one day. But the key focus is on the one who pleases God versus the one who doesn't. The one who pleases God receives the reward of grace. So what does it mean to please God? So you start to connect the dots here. The one who receives the reward is the one who pleases God. Well, how do you please God? Well, this is where we have to caution ourselves and our hearts from taking all of the striving after things that we think will provide ultimate reward. And then we take the same striving. We say, okay, well, it's the one who pleases God who gets the reward, not the one who goes after. There's no reward in these things, but the reward is in pleasing God. So we take all the striving and then we just aim it at God. And we say, well, I've got to strive to please God. And then I'll get the reward of his gifts and his enjoyment. That would be anti-gospel. That would be working to earn God's favor. So what does it mean to please God? Sunday school answer, which we pick on a lot of times, but it's a really good answer because it's what? What's the Sunday school answer? Jesus. Thank you, Kyle. Only one that went to Sunday school growing up right there. Jesus. Paul. Paul makes this so clear for us. So he says in Romans 8, Romans 8 said, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Only in the spirit can someone please God. How does someone get in the spirit? By faith. By faith in what? In Jesus Christ and him crucified. Just go walk that journey with Paul in Romans 8. Hebrews 11 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. So sum those texts up, put them together. Pleasing God comes through faith in Christ who imparts the spirit who allows us to live for God, which is therefore pleasing to God. So you get it? Pleasing God comes through faith in Christ who imparts the Spirit who allows us to live for God which pleases God. So it's through Christ that the rewards of grace come about. I said last week, like, what, what I learned pretty quickly from Ecclesiastes just diving in the first couple chapters and looking at it as a whole, like, you gotta let the you, you really have to let the word do the work here. Okay. This is, this is a tough love kind of book. It, I think it's a slow work by the spirit to puncture our misconceptions so that we can begin to see life as God designed it. It's so hard to come up with like, now here's the four application points or the three steps you take that makes the coin drop on this and it clicks and you got it and you're like, okay, now I get how to how to eat and just find pleasure in that and thank God for it and that's it. It's just a good gift and not go beyond or I know how to go to work and I get it now and I know how to go to work and just thank God and find pleasure in it. I can be I can be faithful and generous now as a result of this, but there's no ladder climbing, there's no satisfaction on the other side of this job. Like there's no three steps I can give you or myself to just sort of make that click. You, you have to let the word do the work. For some, it may happen quickly. For some, you may already be there. For some, it may not happen until well beyond we finish this book. But the point for today is without getting this point, that it's those who please God that receive the reward of grace, if you don't get that point, 
the, 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 the coin will never drop. Okay, nothing will ever come out of that machine. Without getting what it means to please God, without getting to the point that you know apart from Christ, God takes no pleasure in you. Apart from Christ, God takes zero pleasure in you. Other than the, the metting out, vetting out of His divine wrath on the day of judgment, He takes no pleasure in you. If you don't get there, this is just a futile journey with no reward at the end. So for the believer who's already there, who already through faith in Christ is living a life pleasing to God, for the believer, I hope the, the, the recalibration is underway. The Lord is opening your eyes to see how His gifts were meant to, meant to function and how there is joy to be found in this messy, complex, confusing, difficult life. For the unbeliever, I hope you see your need for Christ. You see, you need for him to make sense of how do you live in this messy, complex, confusing, difficult life. For the believer and the unbeliever alike, the exhortation is stay engaged in the journey. Let the word do the work and praying it will be fruitful for all of us. For now, we are out of time, way out of time. So let's pray and simply anticipate what the Lord's going to do in the weeks ahead. Father, we're thankful for your word. Pray that it would be clarified in our hearts and minds that you would you would chip away, you would chisel away, you would puncture, expose the misconceptions and illusions that, that we can get more out of the gifts than what is intended to be there. Father, help us to see there's, there's no ultimate satisfaction in wisdom and pleasure and success. But for those that please you, There is joy to be found in your gifts. So we pray you would lead us in that endeavor, in that direction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.